On the subject of the piano, James Baldwin once said, A piano is just a piano. It's made out of so much wood and wires and little hammers and big ones and ivory. While there's only so much you can do with it, the only way to find this out is to try. To try and make it do everything. My guest today on the program, well, he makes the piano do everything. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Allison Krauss and Vince Gill, that is the music of my guest today on the program, Matt Rawlings. Let me tell you a little bit about Matt Rawlings. Okay, so like all good stories, this one takes place in 1990. I got Matt Rawlings' marvelous Balconies album in that very year, and then he just kind of vanished. I thought for sure the Connecticut-born pianist was set to take over the world, but his solo career literally went radio silent, and I figured that was that. But to be totally accurate, that wasn't even close to that, and there was no radio silence from Matt Rawlings. But because this was before you could Google such things, it appeared that Matt Rawlings had vanished. I figured he was selling real estate somewhere on the East Coast, raising a family, maybe playing piano at night. Boy, was I wrong. Because Matt Rawlings, it turned out, hadn't vanished at all. Unless, of course, you count winning a Grammy, playing with Mark Knopfler and Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Billy Joel vanishing. If you do, then we can safely say that Matt Rawlings positively vaporized into thin air. Matt Rawlings, it turns out, is a musical monster with a resume that would make anyone envious. He's played with Clint Black, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Queensryche, Yes, that Queensryche, Richie Sambora, and Peter Wolf. He produced records by Blues Traveler and Willie Nelson. In fact, he snared that Grammy Award for the Nelson album. He played in Lyle Lovett's large band, did several tours with Mark Knopfler as his keyboardist, got nominated for two more Grammys, and the list just goes on and on and on. This one I'm giving you? Well, it's just the abbreviated version. Long story short, 30 years later... Matt Rawlings got around to finally following up Balconies. But forgive him, he's been busy. A riveting and rootsy platter, Matt Rawlings' mosaic is fabulous work. Featuring Willie Nelson, Lucas Nelson, Lyle Lovett, Allison Krauss, the Blind Boys of Alabama, and Ramblin' Jack Elliott, 
The album is filled with finesse and groove and is one of the most refreshing, enlivening, and satisfying albums in recent memory. And this conversation is awesome. So here's Matt Rawlings and me having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. History with you goes back to when I was working at college radio, and uh, in 1990, um, and, and you know, MCA Records would send these packages of music to us. Sure, um, sure. The old days of spinning media, and you and your album got included in with, um, you know, I think it was like a tragically hip record and a record by the Blessing with William no Tuckley. <laughs> right. And so it's like, so automatically it was like, oh, this has indie cred. I, I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. And I got absolutely enchanted by that record. Oh, that's, um, cool. that's my that's entry funny. point in. I was just talking with, uh, uh, with my friend, do you know John Regan? I don't. So John is a, he's a, he's a great pianist, singer, songwriter in New York City, but he's also a journalist. He, he was the editor of Keyboard Magazine until recently when Keyboard Magazine ceased to exist. Um, but he's, he's, uh, so he's done a bunch of amazing journalism stuff, but, um, I'm, I think I'm going to do a limited vinyl run of this new record. I found this place in France called Diggers Factory and they do actual, it's like crowdfunding vinyl. They do a thing where you set up a project, you set up the artwork, you upload the, the record and then they, then you start a campaign. You decide how many you want to sell, what the price point is, what you know, 180 oh, gram yeah. numbered, all that stuff. And then you, and then you start pre-orders. And once you reach your pre-order, um, they manufacture and ship all your records for you. Um, Can you beat that? And you don't pay anything. So uh, um, you actually make money. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, I was going to say like that sounds like you might actually make some money on that. Yeah, you actually do. Yeah. So, so what John was saying because the reason I told you that is that he was saying, you know, what about your, what about your last record, your 1990 record? And yeah. I don't own it, but he said, well, you ought to look into it because these kind of things, these vinyl, you know, it'd be a perfect because they do a lot of reissues of, you know, of older older records and. Yeah. Stuff. I don't, I don't, I, I doubt I could get them to let go of the record without some money. So how does that work? I mean, like if you wanted to release balconies on your own. Well, you I can't, have to, I, I'd have to, I'd have to, I mean, I don't own it. Right. So I would have to, you know, go to them and, you know, or have my representative go to them and say, we would, you know, we would very much like to find a way to, to, to get this record back. What, what would it take, you know, for Matt to, you know. I don't know how that works. You know, I don't even remember what our budget was, but it's probably, you know, I'm probably 15, 20 grand in anyway. Yeah. Imagine something like that. So, um, you know, record companies are not known for, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> being nice about those things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, it's funny. It seems like at this point in, in life that, right. you know, that they would be a little more uh, understanding or lenient about those kinds of things. But, um, by the way, is that how it works? I mean, do record companies just keep stuff in catalog and 
they wait for someone like Matt to buy it back? Uh, generally, it just squanders in obscurity, I think, um, unless somebody, in the end, unless somebody expresses an interest in actually, uh, um, you know, buying the rights, it's, uh, uh, yeah, they, um, it's out of print, so they don't, it's not like they do anything with it. They don't, right. it's not right. released. It's not the only ones you can find are on eBay and, you know. I don't make any money for that. <laughs> no, I was gonna. I was going to show you. I still have my cassette. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I've got the cassette, and I have two of them. One of them is is still shrink wrapped. No and, kidding. Yeah, and one of them I actually listen to relentlessly in the car. That might be worth like eight dollars. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that record, and I and oh, it was thank my. You. I loved it, and it was such a great introduction to your music and. Um, you know, because it came in the package with the with the blessing and with the it, it, yeah. it had this like indie seal of approval. So I was like, oh, this must be cool. I didn't realize that MCA uh, uh, put out the Tragically Hip uh, yeah. as well at that time. And that's, I mean, that in itself, uh, I'm happy that that made my day. <laughs> Pretty cool, right? I think it was the yeah, Road right. Apples record. Really it was, cool, uh, yeah. And that blessing record with William Topley, uh, oh, Prince man. of the Deep Blue Water. Yeah. Topley is amazing. I met him actually uh, some uh, on one of the tours I did with Mark Knopfler ten years ago. Uh, William Topley opened a bunch of European shows for us. Seems like a, a fairly a fairly intense fellow. Yeah, you know, my memory is that he had a kind of a brooding quality, uh, but 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 mellow. You know, he's a nice guy. Did the space between albums start to become a kind of larger noun? Like, did you think about it in terms like that? I didn't. You know, no, I don't think I did. I think it got to be so long that it ceased to be about, you know, it was 30 years. It was like, well, it does, you know, that, that particular uh, aspect, you know, isn't really a, a factor. It ceased being, you know, meaning. So I signed a deal, you know, M I was on MCA Master Series. So Tony Brown, you know, in the 80s started this great thing for musicians called the Master Series on MCA. And uh, and that that's that's what balconies came out in. It was Mark O'Connor, Strength in Numbers. It was you know uh, all, all these all these amazing people. John Jarvis. Um, at, I'm I don't know exactly how m many years later, but mid '90s, Jimmy Bowen, who you know who ran MCA Records when when Tony Brown was you know head of A and R, then he went on and he uh, and he took over Capitol Records before Mike Duncan. And then there was a period of time where Bowen had this great idea that he was going to change the name of Capital Nashville back to Liberty Records, mm. and uh, which was like the old original. It was an, you know it's an old old label, and he started a Liberty Records master series, and signed me, and I made a record. It was called Ten Reasons, right? And it had ten songs, and uh, I made the record in my basement in Westmead in a studio that I had and uh, mixed it and mastered it, did artwork. And right when we were kind of at the starting gate, the whole label switched. Dungan came in, took over. It went back to being Capitol Records and the whole Master Series went away. So that record never came out. So, so there was a record in between it just never saw the light of day, you know? And, and again, another record I don't own. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, um, so, so then, you know, the, the question of doing another one, it, uh, it, a lot of things had to conspire for this one to, to come together. 
it, I, I, I absolutely didn't have a plan to make a record. I mean, if you want, I can tell you the kind of this, yeah, I assume you would, you were going to ask about, you know, sort of what the, you know, how this happened. I was um, curious. Yes. Okay. So, so, and, and I'll preface it by saying this kind of leading, leading out of what I was just saying is that over the years, people would say to me, why don't you, you know, when are you going to make a record? When are you going to make a Matt Rawlings record? And, you know, they would hear me play and they'd say, man, you know, God, I want to hear a record of that stuff. And for me, having been a, you know, toured with so many different people, having played on so many different styles of records for people, I, you know, I, I became a real chameleon. And so to me, it was always, I was always flummoxed by that, by that question, because I didn't really know what it would be like, okay, what do I make another jazz record? Or is this more of a, like a solo, like a melodic record? Like I didn't, I didn't really have um, a clear sense of what a Matt Rawlings record would look like. And I think for that, or sound like for that matter. And I think for that reason, I just, it just didn't happen. So, you know, 2017, I started touring with Alison Krauss mm -hmm. and uh, we did a short tour that year. Then 2018, uh, we did a big tour, 60 plus shows, a bunch with Willie, a bunch on our own. Drummer in that band uh, uh, is Jay Belarus, great friend of mine from LA and a brilliant drummer. Really, I don't know if you're familiar with Jay, but, um, uh, you know, does all T-Bone stuff and Joe Henry and just, just a really incredible artist in his own right. So, you know, throughout this tour, um, we had begun just uh, finding finding little moments during soundcheck where it was just the two of us and, and playing, improvising together, where either he would just start one of his little funky grooves and then I would join in and this little spontaneous composition would happen or I would start something and he would join in. He started recording them. All of us are on in-ears except Jay, super old school. He had a monitor. He'd stick his phone in front of the monitor and press record, and then he'd send me these little snippets. So I had amassed this whole, you know, folder full of these great little pieces, and I would name them by this, you know, I had Dayton, Ohio, and, and uh, you know, whatever, all these, you know, Marina Del Rey. I had all these different names of these pieces. And so we joked about... Uh, uh, making a soul, making a duo record. And, you know, what I was realizing was that I was really playing with him. Uh, it, it was unlocking something in me. It was really unlocking this, this, um, you know, because I, invariably over the past 20 years, I'd find myself in my studio at my piano at midnight playing, just improvising and something would happen. And I got to see if only the red light were on then, if only I could record that never kind of found a way to, to marry that. And somehow with Jay, it was unlocking that part of myself where I was finding myself really free to, to just play. So, um, so cut, cut to July of that year, 2018, we're on a break from the tour. My wife and son are in Northern California where they generally go for the summer when I'm on tour. So I meet them there, Marin County. And, uh, my wife and I have booked, uh, a, uh, an Airbnb in this little town called Inverness, okay. which is in West Marin on, right on Tomales Bay. And our son is with his grandparents, which is, he, he was absolutely thrilled with. We got four nights there, and our last night, we drive down the bay and then back up the coast on the other side on Highway 1, right? It goes way up, and eventually it'll get you to Bodega Bay and all that. So up near the top of Tamales Bay is this little seafood joint called Nick's Cove. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we drive up, we make a reservation, we're going to go eat, eat at Nick's Cove, look at the bay. We, we pull in, you know, and there's, there's, there's the restaurant, and then they've got a pier that kind of stretches out into the bay with a boathouse at the end of it. And so we decide to take a walk down the pier just before we have dinner. 
and look at the bay, maybe, you know, take some pictures, whatever, you know, stuff to post, all of that. And so we get there and we look in and in the boathouse and, uh, and we see that there's like a fire going, right? So a wood-burning stove. So we walked into the boathouse. Right on the right, as we walked in, right inside the door is an old upright piano. And then there's a wood-burning stove, fully stoked, crackling in the corner. There's a table there and there's this old guy sitting at the table and he's got a sketchbook in his hands. He's this old guy, he's, he's got his shirt buttoned up and he's got suspenders on, nicely made up, but I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's up there. So my wife, as we walk in, she just, and this is very uncharacteristic for her, she just plunked a middle C, just to ostensibly like, is there even strings in this? Like we're, it's in a boathouse on a bay in a really sort of, you know, wet, place right so but sure enough bonk there's a mill c this guy he turned around he said oh you're gonna play something and my wife says no that's all i got no bench right so i said no i'll play you something so i just stood at this old upright and i just started playing a little ragtime this a little improvised kind of ragtimey something and this guy just lit up he just it's like just room like the lights went on and he started talking to us he said, oh, are you in a band? And I, you know, I said, oh, you know, I, I was, we're keeping it close to the vest at this point. Didn't know yeah. who this guy was. And uh, I said, oh, you know, I play, play here and there, a couple people. He said, uh, he said, I've written two songs in my life. And Johnny Cash recorded the first one. It's called A Cup of Coffee. <laughs> so we're going, all right, what's going on here? Who's this guy? I played him some more. He's got a sketchbook and it's opened to this page where he's been drawing like a point of view look from the inside of an old uh, Peterbilt semi, dual shifter, you know, old semi. And uh, we're looking at it and he says, if I had kept doing this, I wouldn't have to play guitar my whole life. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, by this time, and, you know, he's, he's just talking. He's, he's, he's like this little leprechaun that's just telling us all this stuff and we're talking about music. And we, w my wife and I are both, uh, you know, just like, is this, like, is he for real? Or is this, you know, like what's going on? Well, it turns out, 15, 20 minutes later, we, we learn that this is Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Oh, my God. And, uh, <laughs> and he lives, he literally lives down the road in Marshall, California, this little bayside little village. He's been there 40 years. He drives his pickup up to Nick's Cove periodically, and he sits in the boathouse by the fire and sketches. And, uh, and we talked for an hour with him. We just, he just, he told us all these stories. We talked about music. He and I just had this sort of instant connection. I played more piano for him. He loved it. And so finally, an hour later, we walk back with him and he's going to leave. And I, you know, I got his contact information, but I was just, I was enthralled. We, they let us, we got in, we got a table at Nick's Cove and we sat by the window looking at right, right in the middle of the bay across from Nick's Cove is this thing called Hog Island. And it's this like rock with these bunch of trees on it. Super spooky. The fog is settling in and we're looking at each other. Like, did, you know, like, did we just go to Avalon? Like what, what the hell just happened to yeah. us? Was yeah. that even real? You know, it was such a mystical experience. So we, you know, we eat dinner, we go back to our Airbnb and I immediately, of course, Googled Ramblin' Jack half expecting that he had died two years ago, you know, and that we had had like a visitation or something like right. But no, there he was. He had management, like local management in Marin. And uh, at that time, he was still signed to Epitaph uh, in L.A. And he, it turns out he had put the last record he had done was a, a blues record that Joe Henry produced that Jay played on, won the best traditional blues Grammy. Um, and so I was, you know, I, I was left with this super 
powerful feeling of, of th that I needed to make music with this guy. And so the, initially my lens in, just because I'm a record producer, was I'm, I guess, you know, maybe I'm supposed to produce a record on him. And, uh, and so I kind of nursed this, this notion. I had a manager in L.A. at the time. I reached out to his management. I talked to my manager. We, I just started kind of scheming and, you know, lightly chasing this, this notion. So now cut to, I don't know, three weeks later, you know, a month later, I, we did another little run. With Allison, we'd do two and a half on and a week and a half off, something like that, three on at the most, very civilized touring. And uh, so we're back in Nashville on a break and I'm uh, getting ready for bed with my wife and we're talking about it. She says, Matt, you know, um, I'm not sure about this whole chase and this idea of, uh, of producing Jack. And she said, I have an idea. Um, and, you know, my wife is always, <laughs> is always looking out for me in that, you know, she's always trying to figure out ways that, uh, that I'm not putting all my time into somebody else's career, <laughs> but right. that I actually try to try to promote my own. And so she said, I have an idea. Why don't you make a record and ask Ramblin' Jack to sing on it? And it was, it was you know, like the, the aha moment for me. And it stopped me in my tracks. And then immediately I started thinking about, like the notion came to me, well, what if it's more than just Ramblin' Jack? What if, you know, what if I ask Lyle? What if I, you know, and the whole thing with Jay and the way that we had been, been making this music together, the whole thing just, the, the concept just sort of coalesced. And so that, that's, you know, pe people have asked me, how did you decide to make another record after 30 years? And the answer is I didn't. Like the record sort of decided to make me. Like it just, it really, it really found me. Um, and, uh, and so I just started reaching out to, to artists and Jay and I, who were still in the middle of a tour, we just started talking about how to do it. And we got Ed Cherney, our dear friend Ed Cherney, uh, the beloved engineer who died last year, but who is one of the world's greatest recording engineers. And he got involved um, and recorded the whole record. And my friend Michael Wilson, the great photographer from Cincinnati, uh, he came to all the sessions and took black and white stills and, uh, and has done two videos for the project now, him and his son. But... Um, but yeah, it just, it just, it, it super organically became a record, you know, and we just, I just sort of backed into it and artist by artist, song by song, we just started making it. And then suddenly there, you know, there it was. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm in Berkeley and I am from Marin originally, but there's always like a Tom Waits sighting in that part <laughs> of the world you're talking about. Right. Um, right. I, you know, and I haven't heard of the Ramblin' Jack sighting, but that, but that is really what an amazing catalyst to get you yeah. to follow up a record. It, it really was. And, you know, when I learned more about him and uh, his, his daughter made a documentary on him a number of years ago. And brilliant. Was, yeah, I haven't seen it. It's, oh, it's, it's great. Yeah. Absolutely so, brilliant. Well, so, you know, all of these people, you know, Bono and Christofferson and all these people, I mean, he, he's, he's a muse. I mean, that's really, you know, he's a cowboy poet, but he's, he sort of winds up at these intersections, uh, you know, the whole uh, Rolling Thunder Review thing, you know, there's Ramblin' Jack opening all those shows for Dylan. Yeah. Uh, so I feel, and he still has all of that, all of that sparkle. He's still, you know, he's, he's diminished physically. He's 80, I think he's 86 now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but man, he is just as sparkly as ever. And so when he came, we actually did his recording in, in Marin, in Northern California, at a studio that Ed helped us uh, secure, a private studio. And my, my wife, he, his, his manager dropped him off 
Um, and he came and spent all day with us, and uh, and we did If I Had a Boat, and then uh, and then I had him sing, you know, that Lucky Old Son, which was which was actually, you know, originally going to be just Willie, but he was there, and I thought, man, what if? So I just had him sing it, and then I had Willie sing the whole thing, and then I had Lyle sing the whole. I think Lyle went first, but and then I just, you know, I I composed a, a trio of the three of them from it, but um, yeah, but it uh, having him in this, it was amazing. I mean, the outtakes. The stuff I have on, ta- on, ta- on, on, you know, recorded of him talking, because we just left it, we just left the red light on the whole time, and it's just, it's absolutely enchanting to hear him talk, because that's, you know, that's as, as the documentary, I think Chris Doverson said, you know, people think they call him Ramblin' Jack because of everywhere he's been, but it's not true, it's they call him Ramblin' Jack because he won't stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, the movie, Matt, is remarkable. All right, I, I, I'll check it out. Is you got to see it. And the thing about him is that he was a real handsome devil. He looked like James oh, yeah. like really good looking fellow, yeah. um, tons of charisma. And he just had a way of sort of like showing up in places and just his personality would unlock all these doors. All the doors, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, when, when I, that, the night we met him, I went back and Googled him. And the first thing I watched was the Johnny Cash show. And him at his prime singing, you know, I think if I were a carpenter, one of those old folk songs, or uh, it might have been that one, but it's not, you know, he and Cash were great friends. Yeah. Uh, and so he's on the show and looking like, I mean, like a, yeah, like a, a, a absolute, you know, dog, this guy. He was, he had the full, he looked like a movie star. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, he yeah. was very, very handsome. And yeah, yeah. also the movie addresses the tension between him and Dylan, which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and the, you know? the, the documentary Scorsese's I think hinted at that a little bit. I, you know, there's so much press about that movie about how much of it was was not true. You know, yeah, yeah, so. yeah. yeah. He does. It. It's really interesting. He, I always feel there's a that sort of how Bob Newhart kind of kind of uh, all about Dylan. Yeah, I mean, he cut that whole foam bit. He kind of ripped yeah, that yeah. bit off. Yeah. I can't remember the comic he ripped it off from. And Dylan sort of took his game from Ramblin' Jack. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, but there's a real, there's a real interesting kind of forgiveness, and um, it's a, it's a really good watch. I would, I would right. highly recommend it. All right, I'm going to check it out maybe tonight. But you yeah. know, it's interesting to me because I feel like Ramblin' Jack's early career is is a remarkable thing, but so is yours. I mean, you had a very, and this this show doesn't really spend much time in the past, which I think is yeah. kind of a relief for a lot of people. But That's I just right. want to say that for you, this gets back to what you were saying about the future is that. You were very, it seemed to me like very early on, you seemed like your musical identity was something you were very comfortable with. Like you, you knew who you were, um, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, thank you for saying that. Um, uh, I, you know, I think maybe my musical identity knew who he was before I knew who I was. But you know, it's sort of like, uh, if that makes any sense, that's- I think that, that part of myself uh, has, uh, you know, I've led with it for so long, or I, I did, you know, that, that it, uh, it was fleshed out really early. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it, 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 uh, it, it kind of led the charge for me and successfully, you know, I've definitely had to do some catch up, uh, emotional, spiritual catch up as an, as a man, as a grown up, you know, yeah. um, but that's all good. And that informs, informs the music now. And which, which I think is a big part of this new record too, is that I, I, I finally, uh, you know, moving back to Nashville from LA, um, having a child, all of these things, you know, I've really found found my voice as a human, I think, in a pretty profound way. 
and uh, and that has really, you know, sort of given me permission to uh, to 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 be an artist again. You know? Tell me what you mean by emotional catch up as a man. Oh, I, you know, I think if I could put it this way, I think I think a lot of musicians um, who are successful, who are good, who are talented, um, it's it's easy to um, you know to let that be my identity. Um, and there comes a point if, if I actually want to be an, an adult in relationship uh, and healthy that I can't really do that anymore, you know. Mm. Um, and, and it's good. That's a really good thing. It's not that music takes a back seat, but it takes an appropriate seat. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, so for me, it's been and I'll just, you know, I can just own this for me. It's been a long term sobriety journey and it's been just an, uh, uh, you know, a long-term relationship with my wife and having a son and all these things that, uh, you know, that allow me the opportunity to lean in to discomfort in a way that I didn't have to do as a single successful musician. You know, mm-hmm. I could back away from all of that stuff and just lead with the music um, and, you know, lay waste to whatever relationship I was in. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, that's, that, and that's, and it's common. So, um but but I you know it's it's a it's a it's a great place to be to have and and to be realizing that that you know um, you know emotional spiritual healing as a person absolutely you know they're it's it's not disconnected from music it's all connected so when the doors open and for me personally the doors open musically it's the same thing I mean I've I, I'm a firm believer that the the, the closer my non musical self can be to my musical self. Um, the the better off I am, you know, like that those aren't those aren't two different people. I'm not a different guy when I play the piano than I am when I take my son to, you know, his drum lesson, you know, or whatever. But one one gets priority in a way it didn't. Uh, no, I think it's it's more a matter of balance. I mean, ah. uh, I think it's just it's it's recognizing that I'm you know. <laughs> I've been a very, you know, I was a very selfish person for a lot of years of my life and I could yeah. be, you know, and, and it's, it's not only not appropriate now, but it's, you know, it's, it just doesn't work, you know? And so, uh, which is great. Cause then I get to discover all, all of the benefits of being a husband and a father, um, off the bandstand, which are profound, you know? Well, you uttered a phrase, a uh, single successful musician, which sounds like a powder keg. <laughs> yeah right yeah. yeah yeah well it is and and how many powder kegs have we known you know i mean i i was lucky enough to if we're going to stick with the metaphor to you know trim the wick early yeah 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 I, I just i had very little uh uh tolerance for uh you know for pain really so when it when it got too painful i i i found help and i, I you know, began a different path up in the morning out on the job Work like the devil for my pay And that lucky old son Ain't got nothing to do But roll around heaven all day Fuss with my woman Toil with my kids Sweat till I'm wrinkled and gray while that lucky old son got nothing to do but roll around heaven all day. Lord above. 
unconventional beginning i mean you didn't you didn't take the path that i'm sure that 99 percent of most 17 year old young men take yeah, yeah um and i'm imagining that your parents must have been awfully supportive for you to feel comfortable to embrace that yeah my you know my mom they definitely were my mom is in the theater she's still she's 81 gonna be 82 and she still works full-time well she did until the pandemic you know, at a professional theater company in Phoenix. She's an actress. She's a director. She teaches uh, theater. She's done that my whole life and been in the arts my whole life. And my father was, he's a long, long deceased, but he was an, an attorney, but, you know, it was sort of a closet, closet musician. He sang barbershop quartet in college. And, you know, so he had, I think, in some ways he had the heart of an artist, but he never, uh, he never pursued it. Um, but, but, yeah, I never, I didn't have parents that's, that, that discouraged me. And, you know, I mean, I showed an, enough promise early on from the time I started playing piano that it was kind of obvious to them that, like, this was something important, you know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I joined the Mr. Lucky's band in Phoenix when I was 17. Yeah. And, uh, and quit the private school to go to public school so I could show up to school at noon every day and do two classes and then go to band rehearsal and they said, okay. Like, I mean, I made the case. I said, you know, this is a gig and I'm gonna be a professional musician. 
and they went okay let's do I mean, it yeah. it's incredible because it's sort of like one of those things where they could have said oh you'll do that after law school matt yeah well i so many people i i know that ha have had experiences where they say you have to have a backup plan yeah. You know, what's your backup plan? And and my thought is, you know, if, if you have a real backup plan, you, you ought to use it, <laughs> you know, because uh, I've, you know, I, I still don't have a backup plan. I don't know. I don't know what I do. My backup plan is, is uh, some version of what I already do. I think you're doing just fine. <laughs> uh, um, in Somehow terms of, it keeps working. Yeah. It, I don't no, know. it's working. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned your son and his drum lessons. Has, yeah. has your own experience being raised by supportive parents for the arts and you being in the arts, has yeah. that also informed the way you parent your son? Yeah, I think I parent differently. I think I'm, uh, I'm breaking some patterns of, of my parents that were somewhat destructive. So I'm hopefully breaking them. But, but what I, what I am is, is, uh, is absolutely supportive and, 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 uh, you know, I, my goal is to provide him with, the opportunities he wants. I'm really, you know, what I don't want to be is the musician dad that is cracking the whip about music all the time. Mm -hmm. I, I want to be available for all the experiences. And I got him drums and he's killing it on the drums. This kid has got like incredible time and the subdivision. And But he's a unique kid and he's not, um, he's going to do things his way. His way. Um, so, so I need to step back too and, and let him find it. And he loves music right now, and he loves. We got we got a whole vinyl set up, and he loves. He's, he knows more about the Beatles than I do, and he loves the Stones and the Who and Zeppelin, and he loves all the right drummers. Um, but I'm also prepared that it could be a phase, and he could get into video game programming in high school, and that might take over his whole life. And you know, so um, so I'm just I'm trying to balance again um, this excitement in seeing an 11 year old kid who's discovering what it means to like play a groove which is kind of amazing you know and he doesn't want the minute i show up and start watching he'll stop so i just need to be like in the in the other room but then he starts doing this stuff and it's it freaks us out it's it's i look at my wife did you just hear what he just did and he'll just you know it's he takes he takes music in just like me he hears everything and then uh he spits it out again you know so uh I'm just excited to see what happens. You know, I'm trying to keep my expectations to a minimum, and because uh, uh, he's just such an amazing kid, anything he does is going to be beautiful. In my yeah, opinion. yeah. I, I'm curious when you were saying that you were sort of at midnight, you were kind of noodling around, yeah, thinking like, oh, I should have. I wish the red light was on. Just out of curiosity, why wasn't it on? Like, why wouldn't you just hit record and and just well, screw it would around? Change. It would change if I would do uh, that. I'd start. You know, it would be the whole. You know, as at thousands of records later playing on records still for me you know there would be a moment where i would just sit down and not do anything and just start playing and this you know something would come out yeah. something would appear um and you know it's i think it's going to be a lifelong process for me to try to get more more and more comfortable with just that when 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 the red light is on because because now i'm you know i'm i've got it in my brain to make a solo piano record of just little pieces that I'm writing and, and that's, you know, I'm going to have to record them. <laughs> so, so I'm going to have to sit out here with my Steinway and press play, press record on Pro Tools and actually play. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a bit of like hardiness and tolerance that I'm developing um, and, and surrender. I mean, that's really what it is, is just finding a, a way to, you know, 
when when the uh, uh, the feeling of oh shit comes, letting it come, and then and then leaning in and seeing what's on the other side of it. You know. Yeah. I want to explore what you were saying about balance. A couple of years ago, I was with my girlfriend at the time, and I was working on the book that was going to come out a year later, and I was I had a little bit of deadline, and I my head was in the game of writing, yeah. but we were we were going to go um, uh, take a trip for for a day somewhere in the city and go to a museum, and um, which was great, but my head was so in the creative process yeah. that I feel like when I was with her that day, I felt like I was being an asshole, right? <laughs> because I wanted to be, and because I wanted to be doing my, the work. Yeah. Um, you were talking, and I think I might've just been a little bit, you know, a little cranky. Um, how do you get that balance? Because if you have musical inspiration or if you have a deadline you need to deal with yeah. and you have familial responsibility that supersedes you doing the work, how do you find that balance? And what happens if you don't feed the creative part at the time you want to be fed? What happens to you? That's good. That's about three different questions. And they're, all, <laughs> they're all really good, though. So, so you know, the first one that I, when I, when you were talking, I thought of, like, if I'm in the middle of a song, like in the middle of writing something, a specific piece, Yeah. Um, that piece lives in my head until it's done, like day and night. I go to sleep with it. I wake up with it. I wake up with with the melody that I couldn't find the night before. And, you know, my wife kind of knows this. She knows who my first love is, <laughs> you know? Like, she's aware that she married a musician and that that's a really different thing. So there's that aspect. The other thing that you said was, you know, was about, like, I don't remember how exactly you said it, but how, how do you, you know, if you're in that vibe, how do you, uh, you know, how do you put it down or, you know, my, my experience is that, um, it's, it's not going to disappear and that, um, you know, service. So being of service, uh, getting out of myself, walking in the house and engaging with my son in something that he's really interested in pops me out of that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, uh, it allows me to like, because it's, you know, as you know, as a, as a creative person, like that thing is, it's like a fever, like that thing of when you're in, in it. And, uh, and that's not a bad thing. That's what drives us to, 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 com to complete work and, and to, to dig as deep as we can and to try to find that little missing piece. Um, but I can't, you know, I have to be able to, I have to have tools to, um, quell the fever uh, because if, if not, it, it, it would sort of be there all the time. And that's not a healthy place for me. Right. That, that's like sleep depriving. I don't eat right. Like all of that, all of that stuff. So it's, it's a trade-off, you know, I don't get to be a, a, a single musician anymore. Um, and there, you know, there are things about that, that I miss sometimes, you know, there might be a time when I really want to be out here playing the piano and it's just not, you know, it's not what's going to happen. It's not the right thing to be doing, and and it's not what's happening. So there's disappointment, and then on the other side of that disappointment is this amazing experience of, you know, relationship, which is really deep, you know. Yeah. And and the deeper I lean in, and the more I put myself in, the deeper the experience of the relationship gets. And and that I find if I'm willing to let go of these expectations, that doesn't that doesn't take away at all 
from uh, from the fire. You know, it just allows me to um, uh, you know to have a little bit of control over it. I guess maybe. Yeah. Better, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're you're talking about being an adult. <laughs> you're talking about yeah, right? yeah, which is you know for musicians is kind of a big deal, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, right. to actually like be a grown up with responsibilities and uh, you know, school and taxes and you know all of this stuff. I mean, you know, so many years I just I had enough money to pay everybody to do everything, mm. so I uh, you know I didn't really. I didn't have to know how to be a grown up, you know. I could look like a grown up and that and that's I got good at that. Right. I got good at looking like a grown up. But uh you know. Well, there's a famous story they always tell English majors and they keep changing depending on what professor is is lecturing, they change who the writer was. But they'll say oh, like, yeah. you know, Hemingway or Faulkner was yeah. writing in his study and it was his daughter's eighth birthday and she knocked on the door and said please come down to my birthday and he wouldn't answer her and i remember when i was 18 years old i heard that and i thought what an asshole he is right and as i started writing i thought i became into my becoming a writer i thought i get it though like if that yeah. story is true it's kind of apocryphal but i do understand how the possession of the artistic moment yeah. makes you maybe a grumpy person yeah well and it's you know i mean if, yeah, and being, and you know, and there might be, a, I mean, I, I can't imagine I'd miss a, uh, I, I think for me, I wouldn't put myself in a position to miss a birthday party. Like I wouldn't, right. I wouldn't. Of course. Be, but, but at the same time, you know, if I were in the middle of it, uh, yeah, I'm, I might risk pissing somebody off to, to not miss what's, what's coming through, you know. Again, it's just like, it's in the moment. It's choices and, you know, it's doesn't always work. It doesn't always look rosy. No, no. <laughs> it's a relationship. Looking at your, at your career, which has just been remarkable, you obviously are an incredible collaborator. Um, you know, people, people like you, Matt. They like working with you uh, because they keep coming back to you. And Stuart I'd, Smalley. <laughs> I'd, li I'd like to know, and I think a lot of people who listen to this program who are musicians, it's an important thing for them to hear. What is the secret to being a good collaborator? Well, there's a, there's a you know again I think there's a bunch of a bunch of pieces of that. You said it uh, in part in that I think it's paramount that you're a nice guy, nice gal, like like and a genuine person. Um, and you know the way the, the the path to paths to that are are varied, um, but um, so I. I, I, I like threes. I got a couple of threes, right? So okay. one of them that I, uh, I've, I've done clinics on this and, and written a bit about it, but it's mastery, innovation, and service. And so it, to, to summarize, mastery is what you know, uh, innovation is what you don't know, service is why you do it, right? So, you know, mastery is what I can do blindfolded in front of a full house at Carnegie Hall, right? Um, innovation uh, is the risks uh, that I'm willing to take, you know, the, like how far out of my comfort zone can I go? And, and within that is knowing uh, not only um, what innovation is appropriate for the situation, you know, so if I'm on a country date playing rhythm piano, you know, there's a, there's a certain element of innovation I can go into or I'm going for something, but vocabulary-wise, feel-wise, uh, um, stylistically, 
there, there are boundaries around that. So that's a, um, and, uh, and then the innovation is always based in your mastery. So it's always as it's always relating to that. And then service is, is that, I mean, service can means a lot of different things to different people, but whatever situation I'm in, you know, even if I'm the artist, I'm in service of, I'm in service of a song. I'm in service of, uh, you know, in, in the artist that collaborated with me on this record, you know, there's a part of me that's in service to them uh, because, you know, they're, they're, they're coming and, and uh, giving me their time and talent. And so uh, there, there's, I have an obligation to, to then be supportive. And um, in that way, you know, if I'm a sideman, I'm in service to the artist, in service to the, to the audience, I'm in service to the other band members. And so all of that for me serves to get me out of my own way. Um, so for me, service as a tool is this notion that, um, and I teach this too, is that uh, is, is, is an actual practice of if I'm, if I'm playing with a band, a singer, whatever, consciously, uh, you know, everybody says when you're, when you're playing, uh, you know, listen to the band, listen to the singer. You know, you always want to be listening to what's happening. But, but for me, it's more of a formal practice of consciously taking 75% of my attention consciously and throwing that attention on the singer, on the, on the drummer, whatever it is. And, um, and, and then in doing that, you know, you have all this craft, this mastery that you've developed. And it's, it's the notion of letting your craft work for you, you know, of not, of not uh, shining the spotlight on yourself and, and, and at all times, you know, being uh, focused on me, you know, it's, I'm going to focus on you and the me is going to take care of itself. Like I know how to play and, and it's amazing what, what the human mind can do. 75% of myself is focused on Alison Krauss singing the song. The other 25% can play the song, play the arrangement, play fills that are based that that are based on my vocabulary and my style like it, it can do all this stuff you know kind of on its own it's you know yeah. and so to me you know as a, as a collaborator i mean that's uh you know that's that's kind of it it's like being aware of 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 my mastery so what i bring to the table you know that's what i lead with you know i'm not going to lead with uh, a bunch of stuff that i'm trying to impress somebody with uh, that I'm not really sure of, you know, I'm going to lead with what's, what I own, you know, what I know about myself. That's where I'm going to start to try to be honest about, you know, this is, this is, this is my take on this. This is, this is what I think. Um, uh, the innovation can also include, you know, uh, trying things based on other people's suggestions, you know, which is a huge part of collaboration is, is, uh, and, you know, so here's a, here's a, a short story. Um, as opposed to the long one I was just telling. <laughs> um, uh, one of the first records I produced was years ago on Edwin McCain, the Edwin McCain band, uh, his record called uh, Misguided Roses. And I co-produced this with my friend, Kenny Greenberg. And Kenny is a, an amazing uh, guitar player here in Nashville uh, and also a great producer. And he, at that time, was a more experienced record producer than me. And so we took this project on and... Uh, and I learned an amazing lesson from him. So it's a band, like one of my first productions. And, you know, notoriously, bands are difficult to produce, primarily because you've got six different, whatever, you have all these different artists and they all have opinions and they all, you know, um, I mean, the classic is, is you're mixing the record and one by one, each band member will come in independently and, you know, yeah, I think this one needs a little more drums and, oh yeah, I think the guitar solo needs, you know, just all of that stuff. But yeah. and they weren't necessarily like that, but 
but they all had their opinions. And so there's this uh, saxophone player in the band. And, uh, and, and I just, I have a specific memory of we're in the middle of a song and uh, Craig, this guy's name is Craig Shields. He had an idea, right? He had an idea for a part. And, and I remember thinking when he said, when he said his idea, I remember thinking, oh, that's not going to work. I don't like that idea. I didn't say anything. Kenny then, immediately the first words out of his mouth were, yeah, man, that could be really cool. Let's try that. Like that was the first thing that he said. And, uh, and I don't remember the outcome, but what I learned from it is that uh, uh, one of two things is going to happen when you say that. And, uh, and it's not even, it's not disingenuous. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's a willingness to, to be open. And so one of two things is going to happen. First thing that's going to happen is just like you suspected, the idea is not going to work. But then the person who brought the idea has the opportunity to experience that without it being an immediate, you know, no. They don't have to fight for the idea. They get to, they get, they get, they, they get seen and heard, and they get to try their idea in in a very respectful way. And then the other thing that's going to happen is it's going to be amazing, and all of us guy know-it-alls over here are going to go, wow, listen to that. I had no idea that was going to work. So then I have the opportunity to exp to learn something, you know. So I think as a collaborator, like just that tool, like say yes, like first, first, you know. When an artist says, you know, man, I, could you try it this way? And, and my first instinct is, really? But, but in, instead of that, you know, saying, yeah, all right, let's, let's give that a try. And, and then honestly giving it a try, and it's going to lead you somewhere. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's, I mean, it's simple. It's just collaboration is about collaborating. It's not about I know or, or you know, or they know. It's not about just being like, you know, because I, I know musicians who in collaborative situations don't offer anything, you know that they just, their whole, their whole attitude is the artist is going to lead this. The artist is going to, you know, so I find there's a balance again that, um, and, and a huge part of being a collaborator of working with anybody is, is being a psychologist in a sense is learning how to read the room. You know, what is the appropriate level of humor that works in this situation? What's mm -hmm. how much of my input is welcomed, desired, needed. Um, and, the only way to get, you know, to get that kind of radar is experience and, uh, and getting in situations where you, where you give too much input and somebody smacks you down in some way, but then you learn, then you go, oh yeah, all right, I should have seen that coming because this, this, and this, you know, but you know, I had the opportunity early on, um, to, to get in recording sessions as a sideman with guys like Reggie Young and Larry London and Dave Hungate and Eddie Bears and Billy Joe Walker, um, Paul Franklin, all these guys, I got to play on records with these guys in my 20s, you know, when I first moved to Nashville. And, you know, a guy like Reggie Young, just to watch the way he moved in a session, the way he, the way he spoke with people, the way he used humor, you know, the way he, the way he used praise, all of these things were amazing uh, uh, you know, examples of part of the craft of being a, a collaborator and a sideman. So um, to me, that was, that stuff is invaluable. Is it easier to give a suggestion or take a suggestion? Hmm. Much easier to give a suggestion. <laughs> but, but, um, but I find that the older I get, it's much more gratifying to take a suggestion, I think. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it tends to inform the giving. I think, you know, I, th I think ultimately what I want is for it all to be humble and honest so that I'm not, um, 
I'm not trying to impress somebody by giving a suggestion, you know, that I'm, if that, I, and that I'm not giving a suggestion unless I actually have one. I mean, it's amazing how many times we give suggestions because we feel like we're supposed to, or we, right. we're afraid that we're not contributing, you know, for, for all the wrong reasons, you know, so, um, you know, again, I've, I've had experiences and examples of people who are very, you know, quiet until they're not, you know, and that's a, it's hard to be quiet, you know, it's hard to be quiet in conversations. Obviously for me, because I've been just talking my ass off for, you know, 45 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> well, but I, you're the guy I want to talk to. I mean, the thing is, is like, I, like Mark Knopfler, who is probably my favorite guitar player, um, he intimidates me just looking at his picture. And it's amazing to me that you have a level of comfort where you could say, Mark, maybe we will try this. Like how, first of all, what it was like to work with someone like him. And, and also at what point did you become comfortable giving someone? I don't know that I ever got comfortable, like, like, hundred percent comfortable uh, with Mark making suggestions. He's an intimidating figure to me too, uh, partly because of who he is and what he's done, what he's written, like just the gravity of his resume is so astonishing. Um, but, but also he's, you know, he's a quiet guy. He's a, he's a close to the vest guy. Yeah. And, and it's, I, it, there's a tendency for me to, um, I can sometimes confuse, um, quietness with judgment or you know like which it's not um but but it's so so he can be you know i find people that don't say much can be more intimidating you know but but we became we became friends and uh um but it it probably took me at least a whole tour you know six months of all over the world with him before i i i gained some level of comfort i would say you know and, and, you know, I was joining a band that had been together for quite a while as yeah. well. So that aspect is that that's another, another piece of it for sure. Also, what's it like to be on stage with a guy who is so otherworldly? Um, yeah. it, it's hard. I would imagine it's hard not to be astonished by what he, what he can execute. Yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, once t I find for me, once the music starts, um, I get, I, that's where I get comfortable. You okay. know? Um, that's, you know, that's, you know, that's home for me, you know, so, um, which is not to say that I wasn't astonished every night, but it was a joyful experience of having this conversation with this guy. And then, you know, 20,000 people experiencing it at the same time. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, it was amazing. I, that was a, um, that was a super next level touring situation all around. I got to do it for about five years. So it was, it was amazing. I heard Billy Joel say that the one uh, piano player who intimidates him is Steve Winwood. Um, <laughs> really? That's yeah. Amazing. Yeah. He said he's the one guy that he just, it freaks him out. Um, wow. Is is there somebody for you that just still astonishes you as a player, alive or dead? Just someone whose work is just- Oh alive. man, there's, there's so many of them. I'm, I'm constantly, I got to tell you, Larry Golding's uh you know who's this um you do you know about larry you know larry goldings i don't think i do oh wow so check out larry goldings um amazing uh you know he's really known for his uh organ playing he has he's has a long time organ trio with uh with peter bernstein and i forgot the guitar player um but and play with james taylor uh with play with um uh john you know john mayer um LA guy, but uh, his, he has a, his, his, his voicings, he does little, and he's a funny, he's funny as shit. He's like this really wacky guy. So he does these Instagram videos and, um, 
and his his voicings are so astonishing to me. I just love listening to him. I'm a huge fan. I know the guy, so he's one. I mean, you know, I was a there's lots of dead guys. I mean, Bill Evans and uh, uh, you know Oscar. I mean, Oscar was an early influence, and so all of that stuff. Um, I watched an Art Tatum documentary recently that just kind of freaked me out. Um, yeah, there's. I mean, to me, there's so many amazing musicians out there now i mean yeah you know it's it's uh i have to remind myself that i you know it's not about me being as good as any of these people you know because a lot of them if i if i just if i compare apples to apples i'll say oh, i'll never be as good as that guy you know i just have to remind myself that i just you know i do what i do and they don't do what i do um and i certainly don't do what they do <laughs> yeah but, yeah know, it's yeah. interesting i mean did you you, know, you grew up in an era where bands like aerosmith because you and i are around the same age and yeah. yeah, you know, bands like aerosmith and zeppelin i mean but for you you were sort of out of time in the sense that the music that was speaking to you was not the music of the time um, well it was a little it was a little bit both ends so there was definitely, you know, it started with Ramsey Lewis and went to Oscar and Herbie and and all that. And at the same time, it was Elton John all okay. the way, like full on. It got to be Billy Joel. And then through my brother, who's a little older, it was the Stones and a bit of Aerosmith for sure. Okay. Um, and Three Dog Night. Um, um, so I was, I had, I was a pop music guy as a kid too. But I, it, it was, uh, you know, my, I, I, I didn't lean over to the hard, harder stuff like my brother did. Um, and my brother's a guitar player. So guitar players, you know, guitar players are weird. And they listen to different music than, than <laughs> guys like me do. <laughs> you know? was, uh, was Freddie Mercury a pretty proficient piano player? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, from what I heard, if he, if he wrote all that stuff, I mean, if he, you know, which I think he did, uh, you know, um, Bohemian Rhapsody and all that stuff, I mean, I don't know as far as him sitting at a piano and playing how proficient, but as a composer, to me, he was incredibly proficient and brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he had his, uh, you know, a, a singular voice, you know, I mean, as a singer and as a, and as a writer on the instrument, you know, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And Winwood, do you share the awe, the same awe? I, no, I'm not. So I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I've really not, a, 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 you know, I don't know much about Winwood's piano playing, but I love his organ playing. You know, so that was my intro to Winwood as a as a keyboard player was him was him you know uh, was Spencer Davis and him playing organ and singing of course you know yeah um, but I'm sure he's a great piano player you know when your first album came out you and I were both a lot younger um, <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine like you're not going to wait thirty more years to put another one out um, do, did this sort of light a creative fire for you where you go I want to just keep following this up and just it keep did it really did and and uh, I definitely, I want to find a way to make another mosaic, you know, Matt Rowling's mosaic too, whatever it is, because the, the template of, of finding an artist and then, you know, curating, handpicking a song and then reimagining the song. You know, and as I said, every one of these songs, it was just Jay and I in the same room. So leakage everywhere. And then the artist in a booth and that's it. That's how all of these tracks were cut. So they're all performances. And 95 to 98% of all the vocal performances are live on the date. A few little fixes, but really all of them, with the, with the exception of Willie and Lyle on uh, Lucky Old Son, because we had to overdub, we had to overdub them. Um, but all the rest of them, Allison and Accentuate the Positive with Lyle and Lucas Nelson's and all these, 
they're all pretty much live takes. So, so just having, you know, it, it was a new way to make a record for me. Number yeah. one, and I want to do it again, you know, and I've got a list of artists and songs that I, that I was like, ah, I would love to get at this. So, um, so there's that, but then also I think it unlocked just the notion that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have to be precious about this. I can record anything in this day and age. I can make, you know, I've got a whole, I've got a, a, a group, a, a group of beginnings of songs for a trio record with ah. Jay, and, Jay and myself and a as yet unnamed bass player. Um, and then I also, I want to make, I just want to start recording solo piano pieces. You know, I've got, I'm a Steinway artist. I have this beautiful Steinway B in my studio. That's just, uh, you know, it's, there's a ton of music in this piano. And so, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely unlocked it. I just, it's, it's, it's the new path for me, really. I mean, honestly, if I, uh, I don't know where any of this is going to end as far as the, the, uh, the pandemic and the music business, but um, I do know that my, my, uh, you know, my job going forward is to make music, you know, and, you know, I mean, I'll, there'll still be productions. I think, I think I'm going to produce a new blues traveler record here in a couple cool. of months. Um, Cause I did their last one. And, uh, and so there are things like that that are kind of popping up here and there um, that I'll still engage in. And I get, I get bored and I need to, I need to collaborate with other people, but um, I think my days of, of being a session sausage are, are, are done. I'm, I'm being really selective about, what records I play on, and um, you know, I don't, um, I don't feel, I don't feel really moved to to be doing that every day in a studio playing on other people's records. Um, right. Because of that, I don't think it's appropriate for me to be doing it. You know, I think the years that I did that, that I played on however many twelve, fifteen hundred records, I was into that. Like I was in it. I, it was, it was. I was driven to do it, and because of that, I had, I had the right energy and the right spirit. Um, to be there, you know, um, and there are a lot of younger guys there here now uh, that that have that. So I feel like it's kind of their time, you know. So it's a new phase of your career, and it feels, but it feels right at the time. Oh, this yeah. the time is right for you to do this. It it does to me, yeah. It feels like the only place to go, really. Um, yeah, it's it like it's been kind of waiting there. It's been waiting for me, <laughs> and I finally showed up and said, "Okay, let's do this," you know. Yeah. Um, and a part of that is a willingness to say, I don't know. I don't know what's, I don't know what this is going to lead to. You know, I've based a lot of my career on, you know, sort of financial, not based the career, but I mean, you know, financial security has been a part of it. You know, I've made a lot of money for a lot of years and it's been great. I've kind of counted on it. And uh, so we'll see, we'll see how all of that goes. <laughs> yeah. And your own personal, like getting back to what we started the interview with, you were saying you didn't know really, you were such a chameleon. Yeah. And it was sort of like, well, who am I as an artist? And this is yeah. this sort of like these next this next phase is you exploring what that That's actually true. means. Yeah, and and necessarily making choices not to go play on somebody's you know rock and roll record or boogie woogie record or something because it's not really where I am. You know, it's not really what is. Uh, it's not really the music that I'm moved to be playing. So. So I feel like it's kind of not fair to somebody to say, yeah, I'll take your money for this, even though I'm not really into it. You know, it's like yeah. I don't need to do that. Yeah. 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 And I mean, yeah. for those of you listening at home, that's called integrity. <laughs> Lovely. All right. <laughs> right? That's right. That's the song I'll write this afternoon. Integrity. <laughs> that's my newest. <laughs> I've been a, a fan of yours for so long. Um, well, and I was so happy to, to see there, there was a follow up. Uh, I was like, I've been waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it didn't disappoint. And, uh, and no, thank no. you, Alex, so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.
dude, right? Matt Rawlings. I enjoyed that. MattRawlings.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with Matt. Buy yourself a vinyl copy of Mosaic. You'll be very happy that you did. It'll fit beautifully into your carefully curated vinyl collection. I know you. You've got it all alphabetized and weekly. Uh, you're doing dusting. I know what's happening. It's all very... You've got like a like a temperature gauge in there, so if it goes over a certain degrees, you get an alert on your phone, and you come down with a fan or a heater. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. Collecting vinyl is a is it's like having a pet, I suppose. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. BombshellRadio.com will tell you all you need to know about our radio station. If you want to follow me on Twitter, please do so at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me the good old-fashioned way. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. A quick reminder, in case you forgot, I know I tell you every single week, but Stereo Embers the Podcast is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, tell every single person you know and our revolution will get into full swing. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Stay from Matt Rawlings' perfectly wonderful Mosaic album. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast right here on Bombshell Radio.
Stay.